Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There we are. Okay. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Was, uh, you, you wrote something. It's kind of long. Uh, that <laughs> 40,000 pages on Warhammer 40,000. I did. I really enjoyed doing it as well. It's fun. It's, it's great. It's huge, It's kind of timely. It's kind of timely, actually, because... Um, there's currently a drama going around at the moment because uh, Games Workshop came out and said, uh, yeah, the Space Marines are male and male only, and they're really mad about it. Really mad about it. But, um, but Who I, would be I, mad I, about that? Elliot Page? Well, exactly. Exactly. Who would be mad about that? Except if you're a complete lunatic. Uh, and you, you should see their responses. I mean, they're just so angry that it's like, well, you, you just can't have female space marines. So, well, who cares? You know, uh, but uh, but it's it's once more in the law. And I explained in the in the essay why, obviously, like uh, Games Workshop doesn't have a choice. If they want to maintain their IP and their fan base, then they kind of have to do this. And so you can tell they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Cool. How are things going with you, by the way? Everything right? Uh, well, I just I'm I'm getting over COVID, so I'm kind of like oh, numb. Have you ever had it before? Oh yeah, I've had it a few times. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just feel weird. Really, I didn't get yeah. any of that. For me, it was just a sort of heavy cold or heavy flu. Yeah, know? no, no, like loss of sensation or taste or. I mean, I, I lost my sense of smell, yeah, and taste, yeah. but uh, I didn't lose any other, you know, any critical faculties sort of thing. Yeah, you got a lot riding on those critical faculties. I know. I do. No, you say that. Christ, I'm worried about it. <laughs> uh, I, I know. Well, I, I watched your, um, uh, I, I, I watched this weekend, I watched your talk with Aaron uh, McIntyre. Oh, yeah. It was wonderful. Like, that's some of, like, the best, clearest reasoning that I've heard from you. Like, you're really, oh, like, you. on top of your game. It was really enjoyable to watch I presented, uh, I presented those arguments to Adam and Sitch. They basically didn't really want to hear them. And it was like, look, I want liberalism too, yeah. but this is true. You know, it's, it's you, you've got to accept these are true. And so, not I think it's next, not next week, but the week after, we're going to be doing a, a stream on their channel on Tuesday talking about it. Because and that's the reason I wrote that is so I could clearly elucidate to them, like you know, black and white. Look, this is why we're getting fucked basically by the critical liberals. race theorists. Yeah, yeah, liberals are getting. Fucked by the communists because the communists have been working on these flaws for a very long time yeah. and you'll notice all of the communist flaws uh, all of the communist uh, demands are extensions of the flaws that the liberals have assumed uh, you know equality universalism things like this and it's just like look yeah. the, these are the reasons you know essentially yeah. they're being honest about and, no, and, and that happens on every that happens on every vector just within like <clears throat> I, I just cut off one little part of the culture war i've been investigating that for years which is the gender issue and yeah. it's so hard to get the liberal feminists or the gender critical radical feminists to understand that queer theorists have their ideas same it's the same ideas it's just yeah. turned all the way up yeah trying to convince them yeah. of that is is a difficult um uh, process though 
I've had a few people say, okay, so how, how do you replace these false assumptions? It's like, well, that's a good question. Uh, and it, it opens doors to conservatism, actually, uh, because you, you have to accept that the conservatives have a point in many things. But uh, we can talk about it on the stream if you want. Let's... Yeah, do, do we, uh, <clears throat> we can just go. We're just going. Yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. Okay. It's not going to be streamed. It's just pre-recorded. That's, that's so fine. Post it afterwards. Yeah. But uh, some of those flaws, we don't have to completely go over what you spoke with uh, Aaron about, but it's just really mm. interesting because I'm, I'm trying to figure out, well, liberalism does have huge flaws. What is the antidote or, or the alternative? And it's like, well, there's this thing called conservatism. So how do we go into the right wing and be aware that there's flaws there too? Or I guess there's trade-offs maybe. Yeah. What are you um, giving up with regard to going from liberal to conservative? What are you giving up? Because there are a lot of strengths, and you detailed this mm -hmm. in plenty of times. That's why you're probably still uh, ascribe yourself to being classically liberal, because I there's do. great things with liberalism, like there's uh, open marketplace, efficiency, mm -hmm. um, different ideas, different communities being able to engage without like the sword, right? Like a, a free society. Yeah. Is, is actually the desirable goal of liberalism and uh, also protection of the person uh, to have property rights in your own person and to then have that extended to physical objects as property and yeah. have that protected. Uh, I've spoken to many of the chaps in the NRX and a lot of them are actually quite nice and they're not, you know, terrible people, but they don't really want to accept that liberalism itself has its strengths and they take advantage of these things. Like a lot of them are sat in the houses they own. Uh, they aren't refugees in a different country, unlike Rousseau, Locke, uh, and virtually, you know, Marx, any, any of these radical thinkers uh, in the pre sort of liberal era, when they came up with their radical liberal ideas, they had to flee. You know, Rousseau's books got burned. Uh, John Locke had to escape the country. Uh, you know these. John, these John Locke was forced out of England. I'm sorry to. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He had to okay. flee to Holland, uh, and he came back for the glory after the glorious revolution. Uh, he was he was a genuinely radical thinker in his time, um, and so the the tolerance of liberalism to the marketplace of ideas is one of its genuine strengths, and we all take advantage of that. You know, well, we until we get to the problem of repressive tolerance and the Marxists taking over. Yes, the, the Marxists have had a very long time to figure out what the problems of liberalism are and how they can beat it. And they're onto a winner at the moment, I'm loath to say. Uh, and so, essentially, the, the realistic liberal, who, the, the liberal who is still connected to the real world somewhat, uh, has to accept that either they are going to commit to for communism or liberalism has to change now on the plus side liberalism is a flexible doctrine and has changed many times over the centuries so i don't see why it can't change again but the thing is uh the there are some core assumptions that i detail in the article um that are not true and replacing them does change liberalism in something else uh although not something totally alien uh the 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 most important ones, though, are the, the, for example, the question of equality. Liberalism actually can overcome that. You know, liberalism really is for freedom. And the idea of freedom is, of course, antithetical to equality. Uh, if we're free, then we're different, as Solzhenitsyn puts it. And, unless, mm -hmm. and if we're equal, we're not free. Mm -hmm. uh, so but in order to square that with the moral foundations theory, of, mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's not fair. 
Like that, it's really not fair that some people are smarter than others, that some people are stronger than others. But the replacing fairness with some sort of um, upgraded Christian love, where we're interdependent, where we our inequality is where we derive value and interdependency, and if we replace that with fairness and equality, we get the state managing every interaction between human beings. Whereas if we have some sort of kind of love or like some, some idea that would be derived from Christianity about the divinity in each one of us and that appreciation, humility that would overcome or balance out that unfairness that the Marxists uh, take advantage of when they try to impose equity. There, there is definitely something there, but I fear that we are too far beyond the power of religion to fix this. Um, I don't see most people accepting religious tenets or foundations to uh, any well, kind of values. Drive. People are going to need values. Like I don't understand. I, I, I know I was evoking Christianity there, but it's just yeah. like there's core concepts in there that are mm. the values. Yeah. Um, the The problem with liberalism in the term in the is the use of the word equality. Uh, they shouldn't have used the word equality. Sameness of process is what the liberals should be arguing for, because that's really the spirit of what they meant. You know, everyone can be judged by the same laws, and that's what a law is, that everyone is judged by that law in that way, and the process is the same and fair to everyone. Uh, but they weren't really arguing for equality uh, in the way that the modern communist would understand it. So equality, I think, is a word that the liberals should move away from uh, and actually embrace difference, embrace freedom. You know, embrace oh, diversity. difference. Be inclusive of you diversity. Could, okay. You could call it diversity, indeed. Uh, but you can emphasize that diversity is a product of freedom. Uh, it's not a product of equity. And this means that you have to be free, but you should be under the same process. You know, the billionaire should be judged the same as the homeless person mm. uh, when it comes to following the law. Uh, we know that's an ideal that's never really going to be reached, but that's what we should be sh striving for regardless. Um, so that's, that's not too much of an issue replacing the uh, equality question. And the the presupposition of the pre-social state of nature, it's a bit archaic now. Uh, nobody cares. We're way past that. I mean, when, when the United States was first being founded and populated by Europeans, that was a relevant thing to think about. But nobody thinks about that now. So, well, yeah, but we think of, and it's the same thing. It's just upgraded. It's called the blank slate. Is it not? It's just the same well, thing. It, it, this, this is... It is. You are, you are right there, of course. Um, but it also uh, bleeds into the question of the universal man. Yeah. Uh, and this, this is the, the thing that we need to think about, really, uh, which is, and this is the hardest truth, I think, for liberals to accept, is that nobody is born outside of a time and a place. And so there is no universal man. Uh, humans do have universal characteristics, you know, the men go out and work the women give birth and raise children these are you know generally universal human characteristics but there is no universal man that can be derived from these universal similars uh, similar characteristics and traits and so we actually then and the critical race theorists have done a very good job of actually hammering this home recently uh, for example when i when they talk about anything they'll say you know uh, when they talk about classical music they have a habit of actually localizing it in space and time they say no it's 19th century northwestern european music and that's true that's an accurate thing it is not just a universal music that all people in all times and all places can appreciate or have any kind of interaction with and 
in a way, they're not wrong when they say, well, that means that the tribesman banging on a drum in Africa is just as valid. I mean, he might not have the technology, the yeah. tutoring, but it, from the perspective of the universe, if you're going to be truly universal, you're taking the mm. perspective of the universe, which shows no preference or favor to any human that's ever lived and wouldn't care if they all died out tomorrow, then these are just as valid. And it's like, that is true. And so the question is, why would we take a universal perspective? And when you think about it, it actually leads you down a weird path. It's like, why would we take a universal perspective? Well, why I mean, did nothing. we? Why did we? Because we had high-minded ideals. Okay. We had high we had high-minded ideals thinking we can have a solution for all mankind. And it seemed natural because at the time you had you the, the you've you've got to remember the liberals were coming out of very particular cultures where they were socially stratified, and this social stratification was theoretically underpinned by divine ordinance. And so it's very easy for a universal uh, rhetoric about mankind to be used as a weapon to wield against that and say, no, look, it's not fair that the aristocracy is artificially, in many ways, oppressing the peasantry, especially as the thing that had justified the aristocracy's position in previous centuries, which was force, uh, was actually not valid anymore with the ascent of the firearm uh, and the massive armies of the Napoleonic era, for example. You actually an aristocrat can't justify himself through his ability to defend the country hmm. uh, because now it's the regular man defending the country it massed ranks of men with rifles and so this leads you into it very very neatly dovetails hmm. with the That's idea well actually this is a this is a common humanity isn't it you know there's the 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 special nature of the aristocrat has kind of been bled away by technological innovation and this new philosophy and so it was very ascendant and it was very powerful and still to this day it's very seductive but it isn't true and it is based on a falsehood and so the question then is okay so if the critical race theorists are actually right to locate us in a time and place and culture and space then what else follows from that and what follows from that is that actually the peoples of the earth are different now i'm not really talking in racial terms although the yeah, first thing especially the, the first thing if, like i mean it is true that genetically people are different obviously and it is true that like uh there there is you know there must be a genetic difference for people to have different skin tones or something like this right this, these all do stem from genetic differences but the the problem that people have is that there is a history in the west of that leading into moral judgments and that's not really what the issue is about um the issue is actually about culture and the historical circumstances upon which a people and by that i mean like an ethnos you know as in nigerians ugandans frenchmen you know the english the americans how these people step onto the world stage as people who have a, a self-identification as a shared ethnic group mm -hmm. and the historical process that produces these types of people is not something from which an individual can readily be detached these people come with languages customs laws institutions and very particular historical memories uh, i mean jewish people are actually a great example of this because of course the most traumatic thing that could happen to a people has happened within living memory and so you can see how this informs the way that jewish people look at the world now and you know it's a, you know there are cynical people on the internet going oh well they're just saying that everything's the new hitler and it's like well 
if you were in their position, that would be the thing that sprung to your mind too, right? So yeah. you can understand, like, this is the, the product of historical forces. And it turns out that everyone is the product of these historical forces and the institutions of the mold, the character of the people. And so you end up with a bunch of base assumptions. And this, this is down to things you wouldn't even think of. Like, the type of language you use informs the way that you think. And it highlights it brings your it draws your focus onto certain things like there are there are there are languages in which there is almost no concept of an i separate to the local community and in such languages obviously personal responsibility isn't one of the most uh, important values mm. however if you go to like a protestant northern european country uh, they're almost entirely focused on the individual and what the individual has within their powers and you know who, like english as a language in particular is very quick to place blame it's very concerned about who can be held accountable uh, and it's that individual who will be held accountable and as soon as you start thinking about it you notice just how quickly the people around you We'll say, well, who did that? Who's responsible for that? Who's, you know, and it's it's very, very quick. And it's embedded into the syntax of the language. Uh, and it, much more so than like Southern Europeans, you know, it's it's like that, that close, but that different. And then mm. you look at like the family structures, like Northern Europeans, because of this very sort of self-sufficient mindset, have a very different worldview to the Mediterraneans, who've got very familial mindset like the it, italy is is basically a thick tapestry of families that overlap but england and De denmark and scandinavia are totally different you know hmm. the, the children are expected to move out you know when they're like 19 or something you know get their own job get their own house and then you know form their own family so you've got these very individuated family units which is just totally different just the, the mediterraneans so it's only a few hundred miles away and the cultures are totally different and so go to a culture on the other side of the earth and you can see just how radically different the worldview of these people ends up being. So, and so the, the liberal assumption of universalism is—it's it, not totally incorrect. There, there are certain universals. Let's say trade or math. Let's say like there's certain universals, uh, uh, more or less, but like balance sheets and stuff like that. I guess that's an imperial imposition then. Well, Trade the, is an the, imperial imposition. That's a universalizing. There are things that are universally shared by humans, right? We all eat, we all sleep, we all drink, we all live, we all die. We all, you know, we used to all try to reproduce. Um, the, the, there are universal aspects to being a human, but this, if you look in liberal theory, uh, Locke, Rousseau, and, and they all do this with the pre-social man. They have to distill what man would have been like living outside of society but there's never been a man who lived outside of society at least not successfully um and so this person never really existed and so it doesn't matter if there are some shared universal human characteristics there's a huge there's so much baggage piled on top of a person that is the product of hundreds if not thousands of years of social development uh, in a particular culture that means that the person can never be separated from that culture you know, they'll always have those assumptions and it is built into everything that they think. And it's not wrong that they do that. And so, and this is the problem with liberalism. It acts as if there's something wrong with that, you know, and in pre-liberal eras, no one questioned this. Everyone knew that like, you know, a, a Frenchman was different to a Zulu tribesman and they would have different experiences. And in fact, well, one way that people used to identify each other from a moral perspective was by professing religion. 
your religion determined your moral outlook. And so it used to be that calling yourself an atheist was you may as well say, well, I kill babies, which incidentally is something we do these days. Uh, it was, it was quite awful. You know, it was, you were not to be trusted. You couldn't, you couldn't be expected to uphold a contract, you know, cause you'd swear an oath before God. Uh, and this was, this meant something, but now yeah. these things don't mean anything. Um, but anyway, the, the, the point being, there was never a universal man. And so this means that we actually need to think of ourselves as particular people in a particular time, in a particular place with particular customs. And so, okay, what are our customs? And it turns out that liberalism is the abstracted doctrine of English political tradition. That's what we're dealing with. And that actually firmly grounds it in a particular place, particular time, particular people. And we can suddenly see why things are going so wrong. Uh, because what is happening is the English political traditions that the American, or should I say the English founding fathers, uh, very concretely tried to lay out from the doctrine inherited from Locke, again, all English assumptions, very classically English, uh, they are being overlaid with French assumptions. And these come from Rousseau. And the difference is that Locke believed in God. Uh, Rousseau believed in God as well, but Locke thought God was important. Uh, and so Locke, uh, as all of the English Enlightenment thinkers thought that our rights were imbued in us by our creator, by God, I mean, it's in your constitution. Uh, and so this was the source of rights, which meant rights were actually very determinate. We knew exactly what your rights were. However, and, and Locke, in his view, uh, in, the, in the second treaties, he would say, well, we sacrifice a portion of our rights when we come together into a society. We hmm. sacrifice our right or freedom to be able to hurt another person or steal something they have, whatever. But in exchange, they forgo their right to be able to steal and hurt us. And so we come together into a, a sensible society. And you can see how you get the sort of hyper-libertarian, minimalistic, you know, very uh, people-focused uh, government from the early founding of the Americas. We can say anything we like. We can do anything we like. We can own guns. We can, you know, you know, we can be crazy Americans, right? And it's like, yeah, that sounds great. And that's the logical endpoint of that. But Rousseau says, no, we don't do that. When we come into a society, uh, what we do is we forfeit our natural rights. And in exchange, we get civil rights. And civil rights are underwritten by the state, which does, in fact, as the American boomers have a habit of saying, you're turning the state into God. Well, yes, it actually does, because the English assumption is that God exists and there's nothing we can do about that. And he gave us our rights. So the best we can do is deal with that. But Rousseau is saying, no, the state is now the originator, the originator of our rights. And therefore, the state can underwrite everything we say. And so when they say healthcare is a human right, food is a human right, housing is a human right, things that are not intrinsic to your person are human rights. They actually mean they're civil rights that will be enforced by state power. But mm -hmm. that, as again, the American Republicans are not shy to say, for, essentially the calculus of that is at the end of the, the final uh, calculation is that it will be someone at a barrel of a gun pointing at the doctor saying, heal that man. You know, and you see this in Cuba, places like this. Uh, this is the essential and concrete final endpoint of the French view of the social contract. And this, now we can see why America and the rest of the West, the English-speaking world, is going so far off the rails. It shouldn't be like this. We should be rejecting these French assumptions because we're not universal men. We are, in fact, Englishmen. All the English-speaking peoples are Englishmen. Shock and surprise. You know, well, okay, so if, if, if we start with that and just reeling back just a little bit, the... Those gun-toting, crazy American libertarian 
that, that I can do whatever I want, I can say whatever I want. What's, what's being implied is that there's already a shared morality in my community. There's already that that doesn't need to be explicated in the law. There's already, we already understand ourselves to have certain moralities. So by whatever I want doesn't mean whatever I want. It means within this assumption that we're kind of blind to. Um, yeah, it assumes so, to Christians. And, and that, that goes back to, uh, I can't remember who said what to whom, but uh, somebody said to one of our founding fathers, you, know, you created a republic and the founding fathers, well, yeah, if you can keep can keep it yeah. like the, the entire declaration and all of our founding documents assume a certain moral bearing. And that is cultural. What you're saying is that is cultural. So what is this American? What are the positive values? What are the assumptions of the American that are the anchor upon which freedom, the limited freedom that we actually do expect to have uh, rest and, and grow from? Um, and if we can, if we can center that, which might be a conservative product or a project that might be what stands as opposed or in, in opposition to Marxism, which is making other assumptions about people not really having morality, just having drives and hungers that need to be sated. Like I don't see a human being in Marxism. I just see units and organisms. The class. There. Yeah. yeah. The, class. Uh, the, the answer is Protestant values. Uh, and I, I specify Protestant values and not just Christian values because they're not the same. Um, hmm. The Protestant values emphasize uh, personal discipline, self-reliance, and uh, good neighborliness. And these were, as you say, completely assumed by the founding fathers. They assumed that they would be good English Christians, uh, Protestants, uh, for all time. And they didn't think that this would change. And therefore the social morality of the the nation would be underwritten by this shared set of values. But of course, in the 20th century, as we can see, these have been rapidly undermined by a certain set of subversives that McCarthy was right about. And look at where we are now. And it looks like they're going to be very difficult to claw back. In my okay. Opinion. But uh, you said earlier that religious language isn't going to float it, but you still you still pine for that or you still say, well, there was something there that we lost. How do you, how do you have those values without the story? Well, how do you communicate those to your child without, you know, a Bible story? Like, is that not that's what a, these, it's a great question. Um, I'm not, it's not necessarily that I'm pining for them. Although I think in a way I probably am. Uh, it's the fact that this was the, the, the truth of it. This was the factual assumption that they had underpinned, as you said, you know, that presupposes a lot. Yeah, it does. Uh, and it wasn't wrong for them to presuppose that either, because they were, you know, an English-speaking Protestant country. So it wasn't wrong for them to presuppose that. The the, And I, I did indeed say that I don't think religious arguments are going to be persuasive moving into the future. So that is, in fact, I think the, the core cusp of the point that we're at is how do we recover these sort of traditional Protestant values without either appealing to things like race or religion? Race, obviously, no one wants to engage in racial politics, you know, least of all me. Uh, but secondly, very few people want to engage in religious politics. And so how do we persuade people who are essentially generations of materialists who don't even understand transcendental ideals uh, like, you know, true love? You know, they're, they're honestly watching Generation Z these days. I don't think they believe in any of these sort of fairy tales that I believed in when I was a kid. 
Hmm. You know, I don't. I think they've had this kind of cynically bred out of them by the millennials. Actually, uh, watch watch millennial cartoons for children, and they are gross. They're absolutely gross. They are for adults, but they're being played to children, and they're totally cynical. Totally, they're morally flat. You know, there's there's very little to them, and it's all it's all underwritten by a deep irony that children don't understand, and so they yeah. they are not able really to pass that this is not meant to be taken literally, and look at the values that are being indoctrinated into them. Whereas you compare the things that I was watching when I was a child, you know, as commercialized as they may have been, they had un unironic ideals in them. They were genuinely sincere in the ideals they were putting across. And you don't think about the effect that this has, but really I do think it's been piling up. And then when you combine that with the sort of cultural indoctrination and, and education that it, feminism has effectively put into the minds of young women and then that sort of cascades down onto young men, you can see why you have a generation of OnlyFans now. The, the young women, and I, I hear this from young men so much, where they're saying, look, man, you know, you being older than me were lucky enough to come from a generation where you didn't have these problems. And so you have a wife, you have a child, you know, two children, three children, and you, you, you've got all these things sorted. But I can't get a wife because all of the women I interact with in my age bracket basically view me as a walking wallet. I am a transaction to them. That's all they see me as. You know, they can't fall in love because they are convinced they live in an evil patriarchy and this the, the best you can do is essentially extract resources from a man. Now, I'm not saying that every woman is like this, but I think that they are speaking to a real phenomenon, that there is a preponderance of women like this. There's a large number of them. And it's actually making dating very difficult for them. And hmm. I can imagine that online dating has made things even worse, uh, especially for people who have never not had a mobile phone. And so I'm not surprised you get like the incel phenomenon, like Nick Fuentes coming up. Uh, like uh, openly being That's proud of the fact of what Nick Fuentes. Yeah, just a weird mix of hyper conservative repression of sexuality. It's just like, whoa. What is he arguing for? You know, and things. I don't even dislike Nick Fuentes. He is actually a funny guy to listen to. You know, like I've watched Very a few of his shows and a few of his clips. He can talk. You know, he's entertaining. I don't dislike him, but it's like he is so far off base as to providing a structure for young men to try and engage with the world. But the thing is, I think he's probably essentially a rational response to the circumstances in which men, young men find themselves. Okay. Like they don't have the opportunities that people of our age had uh, when we were young because women hadn't essentially been like, you know, stripped of the romance of being a woman, you know? Uh, whereas now it's very difficult to see and find young women who think femininity is positive and you see like um actual like femininity bloggers these days like ben shapiro's sister abby shapiro is one of them they're, they're actually quite few and far between and you you can point them out and say look here's an unusual woman on the internet who's saying that actually maybe the magic of womanness womanliness is um is something worth pursuing honoring you know, it's, yeah it, absolutely it's 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 something that every woman in her grandmother's generation would have intrinsically understood and every woman would have done it but now it's a rarity and i can see where the young men are coming from being like look i just i can't find that wife well you know, that, I just that can't do it. the problem being that if we're, we're in a um i don't know if society's falling apart or not but like there's a lot of advancements towards decadence and the structures mm -hmm. uh, while it's 
falling apart in, in a moral sense. It's also encroaching more and more into every aspect of our lives. And so there, how do you build a structure, a moral foundation structure during a time of incredible encroachment of this structure, this bureaucratic amoeba, this Cthulhu, um, and also this decadence too, that's stripping people of their value. So you said that men are reaching out and talking to you, like, what are they, what are they looking for? And is that not some form of conservative conservatism or some sort of like just explicit values, like a code of ethics? Without a doubt. Uh, the, there's no question that many young men feel untethered from anything that feels real and that feels that they, and the worst, the worst thing for young men is to not have order and structure. Uh, this is, this is why I think, um, and I'm, I'm convinced of this, that young men who grow up without fathers tend to become delinquent. Uh, this is the, the reason for delinquency. Because I think that there's some, you know, ancient primal evolutionary reason that men respond to violence. And so the father being in the house is essentially the authority on violence in the house. And every young man knows this. Every young man knows this. That if they step out of line too far, their father is going to beat their ass. And rightfully so, and that's how they keep themselves in line. Uh, they're actually not very rational creatures, young men. Uh, and actually, it turns out that men generally are not terribly rational, but then neither are women, so it's not like there's any fingers to be pointed between the sexes. Uh, it's people in general are actually not thoroughly rational. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, and I, the way that we uh, the way that we inculcate good behavior uh, is different between men and women. That's, yes. that's one one argument that I'm trying to make for gender. Gender yes. is a is a code of ethics uh, to regulate the different uh, drives and natures of the sexes, and Absolutely. it can be less or more restrictive. But you're going to need that. You're going to yeah. you're going to want to restrain the men. Yeah, you're going to want you're going to restrain the women too. Yeah, absolutely. I've, been, I've actually been working on a sort of thick definition of woman recently. And, <laughs> with two uh, C's or, or a C with and a K? With two C's. Because uh, I, I, there was a philosopher called Bernard Williams, and he was saying, well, look, some language is what he called thick concepts. He spelled it with a CK, but I think it's better with a CC. And uh, the, these concepts are multi-layered. For example, uh, the word betrayal. You can't... Betrayal describes an act, it describes two people, and it describes a moral judgment all in one word. And you can't mm. separate this concept out uh, and still have the concept of betrayal there. You can't subtract these elements and still have the concept of betrayal. You have something else. And it turns out that a lot of our language is inherently descriptive and normative. So it describes something and it makes a judgment about that thing. And we, you know, we have this all the time, you know, <laughs> heroic, you know, glorious, you know, deception, things like this, you know, it describes a thing that's happened and it judges it. And, Gender roles, like you say, are exactly the same. The term woman comes with it in one layer of it is like one layer of it is a biological description. Another mm -hmm. is a social description. And then another is a normative ethical demand. Yeah. And it's a demand for men and women, how we can live together in a shared society and all feel comfortable and have boundaries respected. And, things and like that. also produce more society. Yeah. Exactly. How the society can be safe, harmonious and self-generative. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, it contains a code of ethics. Um, and this, this is important. And, it has to be understood that for men, violence is a part of that. You know, it's just a fact of life that that is young men are physical beings. 
you know they're very aware of their physicality i mean my sons love play fighting they love it more than anything like in fact a, f- a friend of mine well a subscriber of us made made me and my my oldest uh, my my seven-year-old he's nearly eight uh, these just these wooden swords so we could sword fight oh, right? no. and my 18 month old <laughs> we're in the garden this after literally this afternoon my 18 month old is uh, wandering around wandering around and, and me and my son are doing a bit of sword fighting and as soon as he sees it as soon as he, you should see his face light up he's just watching a sword fight he's giggling he's laughing and he comes over and he wants to be a part of it it's like you know i mean he's there playing with the bicycle wheel that's laying on the ground so he's you know being very boyish anyway but as soon as he sees us fighting he is in rap he is he's giggling he's laughing like he's watching the funniest thing in the world he can't, he loves it and it's like that's a boy thing you know this is very much a boy thing and you've got to accept that this is what men are like and we need to be able to have something in society that caters to that. Because as Christina Hoff Summers says, the education system and the society we live in at the moment treats boys like defective girls. It's like, mm-hmm. They're not. They're yeah. just different. And it's okay that they're different. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, informing that, and, and I think that a lot of young women, there are currents within uh, womanhood or the woman side of the world where women are, are looking for some sort of traditional values too. Um, And there's a a growing movement of post-liberal feminists too, uh, or even post-feminist women that are are saying, we lost something. We did, we took all these liberal assumptions, but that stripped us of our, of uh, even, even the idea of the individual doesn't make sense when you, when you think of a mother and a child or a pregnant Mm -hmm. woman, there's no two individuals there. It's a dyad. It's two in one. It's a, it's a mystery. The male mind or the liberal, um, thought process doesn't at all look at the beginning and end of life. It it has no room for care. And then you have Marxism coming in here with this weird kind of inverted kind of care where you have this mother state and where everything's about fairness and care and harm reduction and stuff. So you have this kind of this, this reassertion of that feminine value that was kind of cut out or left out of the uh, liberal thought experiment. And I think that women are understanding that that's something that they want to be able to explicate and share amongst each other and then also share with men so that men can understand them, respect them, honor them, and then do what we need to do in order to support that have you ever noticed how properly managed femininity is like a spell it's like an enchantment uh when you have a woman who is in command of her femininity uh and and is is womanly you know has that kind of uh, and it's it's a lot of small things that are packaged up, but it's you know the the way they present themselves, like you know their their nails are done properly, their hair is done properly. Maybe they're wearing perfume, but they're wearing very feminine clothes, and they comport themselves in a certain way. Then you can see the room bending around them. You can see everything, like you know, just it like like there's a, an attractive force that bends everything to their attention, yeah. and so they're in command of everything around them. And it's like, but what have they even done here? You know, what have they done? But there's something magnetic and magical about this kind of spell that women can cast on men. Mm -hmm. And this is what every woman's grandmother knew. You know, this is what was handed down from generation to generation of young women saying, look, act in a certain way and men will be falling at your feet at all times and all places. And you can see a hundred years later, the, as you say, the sort of post-liberal world we've arrived in, where women are now just lumps of flesh equal to that of men, reduced to that of men. And it's like, okay, but no one needs to do anything for you anymore because we're just equals. And if we're equals, I'm not doing anything for that guy over there. I'm certainly not doing anything for you. There's nothing Hmm. special about you either. And so you can see how the sort of the disenchantment of the world has 
been successful. But who did that benefit? Who was that good for? You well, know, the, one the, one percent of OnlyFans, the ones who are making a hundred thousand dollars a month. But even then, is it even good for them? Because one of the things you notice, there are lots of, you can search, find lots of articles of very beautiful women saying, I can't get a date because of my OnlyFans. Like, no no man will date me because I have OnlyFans. It's like, well, what did you think? You know, did you think you could just get loads of money and replace your need for a loving relationship with your OnlyFans? Uh, and because that's where you are now, you know, and who knows if it can ever be undone. And that's, the top 1% of women, you know, that's the most attractive women who will ever live, who are now multi-millionaires and have their own giant empty mansions as they sit around going, why does no one love me? You know, whereas uh, the, the thing is, I think that this, if you look at the feminist academics who were part of bringing all of this about, one thing one notices is they lacked feminine mystique. One, one can't help but notice that these women look as though they're actually very jealous of the just the regular woman who has a bit of feminine mystique, you know, who knows how to play the game somewhat so she can get a husband, so she can have kids, oh. so she can find herself in a loving relationship. Well, a lot of these women didn't have that. And it's like, hmm. Well, really there is a politic of resentment uh, around that that's very, um, it's very subtle. It's uh, like whenever I, I, I speak with women on my show. Well, I, I do a lot of interviews with women. If I happen to accidentally compliment a woman, I'll get a lot of flack from other women being offended on behalf of the woman I'm complimenting. Like you have a nice accent or yep. you, you, your, your poise is excellent. You have a wonderful way of presenting yourself. You know, that that's seen as me reducing that woman. There's something about that femininity that's discouraged or you're not supposed to notice it. If a man notices it, you're evaluating this woman based on this thing called mystique, which is not really evaluating her according to her intelligence or what she does in the world, but rather her mere accidental femininity. Like it, 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 it seems like femininity as you describe it is kind of a slight to some women. Yeah. It, it, it seems like they, they see that as you cheapening women. Um, how terrible that is to say that it's accidental. It's, it's not, it's very, very finely cultivated and it's a lifetime of habit that makes these things work. You know, uh, you, you can, and you, you, you get the, the what was the film uh, with, um, she's all that where you've got the perfect example in it right the 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 dowdy girl who doesn't oh, spend any with time Zac with Zac Efron her. and yeah, the girl. something like that it was years it was ago nerdy girl yeah 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 but you, you and there are many kinds of these stories but like yeah. you know where you've got the and then she goes through the process of becoming you know aware of her femininity and she cultivates it and suddenly she's beautiful and all the guys like her right this sort of magical transformation well that's not that that is not really real as in you can't just take a woman who has no feminine mystique, put her in makeup and high heels and then assume she's going to have it, you know, because it's actually a lot more than merely the way that you dress. It's the way you conduct yourself, the way you incite expectations out of the men around you. You know, you, you well, that brings up the uh, a feminist critique about beauty standards and stuff, because that, that mm -hmm. the beauty standards that we see in magazines and even on television and produce movies, they're very surface. It's very obviously the dowdy girl in those movies is always incredibly beautiful. She just happens to have her hair down and glasses on, but she's already yeah. incredibly beautiful. The what, what can't be transmitted through a magazine is is poise, is is conduct and is confidence and the confidence that women um, 
look for or that that feminism wants to give to women called empowerment it, it it doesn't seem completely rounded because it's always like looking at, well, the feminist assumption about the patriarchy and women being victimhood. I don't think you can get to true confidence through victimhood. You can get to empowerment of, of a destructive sort, but that the, the, the most, the most empowered women that I've ever met are not, they don't need feminism. No, they repudiate. They, they understand it. Uh, the, the, you know, they do, fight for women's rights and against, uh, you know, the, the subjection of women to different laws and stuff like that. But they don't need the ideological academic feminism um, because they exist as themselves. Yeah. I mean, like the I, I've met many women and recently through what we're doing at Lotus Seeds, it's because it, because we're promoting a kind of intellectual conservatism. Um, it has been attracting some very interesting ladies who want to talk to us because they are very aware of the kind of magic spell that women cast. And, you know, there used to be schools and manuals, and you know, for women, how to be a proper woman, you know, stand in a certain way, act in a certain way, conduct yourself in a certain way, practice these things, and men will do anything you want. You are basically invulnerable. You know, you, and you know, men were also trained during this era. Men were also absolutely. finished and, as well. It wasn't just one side. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, you know, how to be a gentleman, obviously. Uh, but but these these um, things, I think, are, are still embedded within the male psyche. If a woman were to act in these ways towards men, I think young men would fall in line very, very quickly uh, if they wanted to bring this back. And so there are some women, like you said, a sort of cultural vanguard of conservative women who are like, hang on a second, the feminists have stolen something from us. They've stolen this magical ability to command the world around us mm. through merely the way we engage and speak and, and hold ourselves. They're, they're, like, whatever state of affairs was present and obtained mm. during this sort of grandmother's generation has been stolen. You know, it was, it was a skill. It was an ability. And young women have been deprived of this. And they don't even know that there's something missing a lot of the time. Mm. I think that's the saddest part about this. And I'm not saying that I can do anything to help them get it back, but... Good luck to those women who are trying to recover it. Well, I think there's something there. So Lotus Eaters, is it fair to say it's kind of a boys club? Well, I mean, we've got two women on staff. Okay. All right. So uh, they're, they're not in front of the camera. And there's not because we wouldn't have a woman in front of the camera, obviously. You know, just have to <laughs> hire on merit. Um, but very few women actually want the job of presenting. Um, mm. But uh, but no, no, there are, you know, we've got two women in the office and they definitely are good to have there as a moderating force because uh, otherwise it would be a very boyish boys club. Okay. Um, but no, you know, we very much appreciate the fact that they're there because women change the dynamic of a, an environment. If it's normal yeah. and you know, you know, any man knows this as soon as we, uh, a, as soon as a single woman steps in the room, things change and that's yeah. fine. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's completely normal, healthy, totally human. Um, so no, I wouldn't call it a boys club. And we have lots of female guests as well, because like I said, there, there are a lot of women who are like, hang on a second, this was all a big mistake. And the, there's mm. some romance has been stripped away from us here and yeah. we need to bring that back. Well, romance. Yeah. On one level, I, I think it's dual at one level. 
liberalism or that universal mindset stripped the reality and the sanctity of uh, the mother-child dyad and and yeah. the need for care at the beginning and end of life. It, it focused purely on the the will and consent and all these assumptions that assume that you are already born in a culture and raised enough to be rational. Before you're rational, mm -hmm. you have to be born and then taught to be rational, right? And the whole rational subject completely cuts that out. And that that power of the woman uh, is, is kind of just ignored. And then mm -hmm. when she's put on the marketplace or when she's compared to men within the marketplace, she's always going to come up second because her uh, – According to Ivan Illich, uh, the, the, the marketplace will always reward the men because the men are just more engaged with the type of work that the marketplace finds valuable, like largely speaking. And, and women's, work, case, yeah. women's work is just not valued or, or just assumed to be valued. And feminists do have – I think, think they have a very valid critique about what they call emotional labor or un, un, unpaid labor. Um, I don't think that the state should be to, should, should intercede on that, but if we don't recognize that as inherently valuable to all of civilization, then I don't know how we're going to write the, um, uh, the the valid grievance that women have about just kind of being used by society to produce, you know, and then you know they're they're they can't they can never earn as much as a man and fulfill their destiny as a mother at the same time it, it used to be that there was a, a social institution that would uh, uh compensate women for this emotional labor on an individual basis uh one man would compensate her for a very long time uh mm -hmm. in exchange for this emotional labor that she did uh, mm -hmm. maybe that would be a place to start you know well, I'm just, saying, I'm just saying the values of men and the values of women or values for men, values for women, values for society, um, mm -hmm. marriage, romance, mystique, all of that was encapsulated better or worse, depending on the religion, but within religion. And by religion, I mean a network of stories and values, proverbs, psalms and practices that synced together communities and then individual families with the, within those communities. The market or uh, our modern society doesn't it's shattered and put all these different things into different areas. And I don't see how we communicate this to the next generation without some sort of story, without some sort of religion. Well, you, you're absolutely right about the, the the story. I think is the most important thing. Uh, I, I think this is probably the worst thing that postmodernism did to us was reject that there could be meaningful stories. Uh, this is not good. This is the a terrible well, thing. Did they reject meaningful stories, or did they reduce all stories to morality tales about power? Did they did they just well reduce all stories I, to one? I think that's a, that's a way of saying the same thing. Uh, a meaningful story is one that contains a moral lesson within it and also explains how things came to be. And the postmodernist, as you say, reduced everything to uh, immediate stories about power narratives, rejecting the overarching meta-narratives of our civilization. And so the stories of how we came to be and the moral justification that underpinned them evaporated. And I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. I think that, I, I mean, actually, I, I find that Aristotle is the most relevant critique of modern life at the moment. No, a story is a representation of reality. You know, when we're telling a story, representing reality for good and ill, you know, with the moral lessons that are contained within. And this is what, why we learn and why we love watching fiction, because we are seeing a hypothetical reality 
and the logical consequences that follow from the decisions made within the environment that's presented to us. And we learn from that about the human condition. So the storyteller isn't just a liar, as Plato thought. The storyteller is actually a philosopher of human nature. And they're telling us about what it is to be human from their own experiences that they're then presenting to us in a way we can understand for the future. And this, I think, I mean, I don't have like an answer really. I, like, I completely agree with you. Your critique is totally salient that what religion did was ge- it gave us these overarching stories that informed how we need to live. I don't think we can just go back. I don't think there's ever a going back. We can only move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that we're in a position now where people wouldn't authentically believe the religion. Uh, if you're not genuinely in it, then you've got a kind of second order. Well, I'd like the benefits of it, so I'll pretend. Yeah, I, don't yeah, yeah. That's, I don't think that's authentic. I don't think that really grips the heart and souls of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm not saying I know what could either. I'm not saying I've got the answer. Uh, but I think we've at least diagnosed the problem. Yeah. Well, one kind of um, silver lining to the encroachment of woke into, let's just say, Hollywood is that they are incapable of telling good stories. Like, mm-hmm. inevitably, the propaganda kind of rats itself out. And okay. and and so there's something about human, human beings' um, ability to tell truth through stories by liking or disliking the story. By loving or disloving the story, by 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 being taken into it or rejected by the story, there's something that is an aesthetic um, litmus test on the reality of a morality when it is distilled and then transmitted through stories. So it might be the case that religion comes back by just stochastically or just this, just people keep on telling stories, keep on telling stories, keep on telling stories, and eventually a network of stories reannounces itself that does have room in it for us to live out our lives in concert with each other and find a lot of value in them. I mean, I hope so. I, I, I think you're completely right about that. I had a guest on, uh, a, a lady called uh, Mega Verma, who is an arts critic and artist. Uh, you can find her on Twitter. Uh, she was a really great guest. And she's one of these young women who are like, well, hang on a second. My femininity is important. I, you know, the, the, this essential magical womanhood is an important thing to me. And she, being an art critic, is very. She had a very, very pithy way of putting this. Hmm. She was saying, "Look, art is is concentrated truth. You know, there's a there's a, tr- a good artist. There's a truth that is very, very, very tightly concentrated and hits you like a bullet. You know, it goes straight into your heart, and that's why you're enchanted with it. You can't help but be. Um, and you are right. Hollywood, obviously, there there are no there are no artists left in Hollywood. There are merely like jobs worths." who are, you know, professional lighting people, story to, you know, story write script writers. But they're not storytellers. They're not artists. They're not they don't have a magic or a passion and they can't enchant you anymore. So all they can and you notice you can tell this by the fact they never make anything new. Like we went through this the other day on on a podcast. Uh in I think it was 2020, 53% of all of the movies that had been made were just sequels. You know, and this, these were just the ones I could identify directly as being sequels, mm-hmm. uh, let alone, you know, remakes and just the same story that's been recycled with new characters, stuff like this, you know, and, and we'd never heard of the new films that come out. Why? Because no one cared about them. No one cared. You know, <laughs> they, they weren't interesting. No one wanted to watch them. And the only thing that anyone, the, 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 the latest film that, that, that was really, um, a really surprise, real surprise was the Sonic the Hedgehog one and Top Gun. 
right? The, of all things, for them to be the big films in the last couple of years, and then Joker in 2019, I suppose, but that was more a sort of cultural critique. Uh, but Sonic yeah. the Hedgehog and Top Gun, like if you asked me five years ago, what do I think the big films will be? I would never have predicted, right? Yeah. But my, I mean, my son loved the Sonic the Hedgehog and a load of my friends loved that Top Gun film. And I didn't even really like the original Top Gun, but I might go and see it, just see what all the fuss is about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, these are actual, you know, proper stories being told, you know, mm. whether you like them or not. And the, it's, you are right. Like, it's so embarrassing for Hollywood at this point. They churn out the same trash every year. Yeah. So uh, who cares? You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of a silver lining, just like Disney. Like people, mm. I guess there's people who are in that cult of Disney and they're adults that go to Disney. It's part of their whole worldview. They can, I guess they can find a very virtual, uh, a virtuous or meaningful life within the Disney worldview. Um, now, to what extent we need to obey Disney and all of its, um, its slide into uh, mm. What, what decadence and stuff is an open question what, where, no, where people will reject that and uh, based on the quality of the tales that it's using to promote the quality of its uh, character right i in think Disney's they go hand defense, in hand. they used to do an amazing job of this enchantment uh they l look at the women they used to portray on the screen you know they used to have like th this is why frozen was such a big deal because they're very feminine women in frozen they're very in command of their femininity. Like Elsa is very, you know, womanly. You know, she's she's got the sort of self possession that one would expect. Hmm. You know, and and I had to watch was it Encanto the other day, and the character is the total opposite. It's like the Californian sort of just constantly talking female character, where she's explaining every single little thing that's happening to her, and there's no mystique. There's no. There's there's you know it's it's just formless you know mm. and so you can you can see that the, the, there's a huge difference in writing styles um and then you go back to like you know snow white and the original disney even you know like the little mermaid beauty and the beast you know the, my wife loves all of these old disney films she loves these so much you know she this mm. is these are a huge part of her childhood and what it me meant to be a woman growing up and where is it now you know, it's it's very very few and far between. It seems. Well, it's still on Disney Plus. You just well, have yeah, to click through a few features, you know, to yeah. get to it. But I mean, yeah, obviously. But uh, like the new ones, you know, the things get advertised, things get yeah. attention. Yeah. You know, it's it's a different world, and you are right. They they are degenerating. So, which is good. With regard to Lotus Eaters, hmm. where are you guys headed? So, when did you start that again? That was three years ago, you guys? Or four, no, no, four, it was three, four? a year and a half, two years ago. Oh, in fact, I think okay. we're, we've just moved into our second year. Excellent. We're nearly, no, wait. So, September, so yeah, this September, I think, will be our second anniversary. Okay. And so what then, is the, where, where are you guys headed? What, what, what have you done and where, where are you headed? Uh, right. So, we're, we're kind of heading into uncharted waters. Um, basically it is a philosophical project, um, that is trying to understand why things have gone so wrong, which is one of the reasons I can talk about it so fluidly, uh, it, just off the cuff. Cause you know, we spend our days discussing this in the office and making <laughs> content about what we've discovered, you know, we, and how do you guys end up not being completely cynical nihilists? Um, that's is a great a, question. British uh, dry humor or? 
there is definitely a lot of dry humor. <laughs> uh, definitely a lot of dry humor. Um, but we're, we're generally quite optimistic people. Uh, everyone there is unbelievably intelligent yeah. um, and really knows their stuff. And I'm very lucky to have been able to sort of bring about a team of very deep thinkers uh, and people who know what they're trying to achieve. And so my my part of it, I've been studying aesthetics recently, and I think that conservatives need to start focusing on aesthetics. Thing like we were talking about with like the, the, the enchantment of womanhood. This is an aesthetic effect. You know, it's not something you can measure, but it's something everyone can feel. And the, it happens in our heads. You know, it's not something that happens you know outside of our heads it's a social thing that happens when we are in one another's company it's part of the human experience and i think conservatives following the sort of roger scruton mold need to start thinking about that so okay what do i want to feel about my own society you know because i mean at the moment I, I don't know how it is in america at the moment but in britain there are a lot of people who feel very disconnected from wider society they they feel alienated in their own communities because mass immigration here is unbelievable. Uh, uh, it's it's got to the point where the conservatives appear to be afraid to release the latest census uh, because in 2011, it was something like one in five people in England was a foreigner. And it's probably going to be a lot more than that now. Uh, probably going to be about one in four, if not more people. Well, you know, one, one benefit is that eventually you guys will start doing uh, land acknowledgements. Um, for for the British, because nobody will remember who's well, standing. <laughs> possibly we'll get you know ancestral tribal lands. Um, honestly, it's it's it yeah it's it's so strange walking down the high street in my city because I live in a place called Swindon, which is not prestigious, right? It's not a prestigious place, and that's actually one of the reasons I liked it. You know, it was it was humble, it was homely, you know, and I, yeah. I would walk down the street, literally five years ago, I'd walk down the street and I'd bump into two or three people I'd known, because I've lived here for over 20 years now, and so I'd bump into, you know, two or three people I'd known, have a quick chat with them, carry on, and it was just Swindoners, you know, people who was just local to the area and whose families had been here for quite some time, you know, uh, but for some reason, the Conservative government have decided what they're going to do is ratchet up the amount of immigration they bring in. So it used to be we'd have about 600,000 new people in a year. And the Conservatives are like, yeah, but what about if we had 1.16 million last year? And England's a very old and very tiny and very, very densely populated place. Uh, and so America has a million legal immigrants in a year at least. And for us to match that is insane. Uh, and so you can and you can see the effect in the streets. And was this not, uh, in response to some sort of economic worry about Brexit or something? No, uh, the Brexit was underpinned by a desire to reduce immigration by many people. Uh, the Brexiteers, they, they the first they were polled about this actually shortly after the Brexit vote by Lord Ashcroft. He's got his own polling company and. The Brexiteers, their primary concern was sovereignty. Obviously, they wanted Britain to have British decisions made in our country, which is not unreasonable. But the second one was immigration. They were very concerned about immigration. And so it's very strange that Boris Johnson, the, the get Brexit done guy, fails to seems to have failed to understand that that was a serious concern and just has ramped up the number of immigrants. I can only assume that for some reason this is good for the GDP or something like that. But honestly, I walk down the street now and it's it's just really strange that 
you see people from all over the world. It's not like any one race. That's the thing. If it was one people who were coming in, you could at least learn their language, learn their culture, learn their customs. You could start to interface with them and, and, and grow a bond between them. You know, you could understand what they were saying. But if it's some French guy from North Africa, like who speaks French, and I mean, the other day I was walking through Swindon Town Centre and I saw three separate groups of North African migrants, obviously recent arrivals, all speaking in French. I was like, why wouldn't you go to the French version of Swindon if you were going to go anywhere? Like, hmm. why would you come to here? Like, if, of all places. And then, and, and again, these, it's, you know, there are obviously Middle East, fewer Middle Easterners, actually, more sort of uh, Indian subcontinent people. So Bangladesh, Pakistan, India. Uh, but then you've got lots of Eastern Europeans. Like, you'll see, like, groups of Eastern Europeans. You can tell that they're Eastern Europeans just by looking at them, frankly. Uh, they, they, they look different. But then they sound different. So they're walking along, you know, jabbering away in some foreign language. And you're just like, where the hell am I? You know, the, and the, just and then you've got like people from like Senegal and stuff like that who you can you know who you can tell come from you know some far place down very south in Africa, uh, and it's just like you've got. I mean, diversity is definitely the name of the game, but it's like I hmm. didn't move anywhere, and now I feel like I've never been here. You know, all of these strange people who've literally within the last year or two turned up, and. You know, the how at the moment we're currently going through a housing crisis. It's oh, there aren't enough houses. Well, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> what did you expect was going to happen? You let a million extra people in, you know, and it's, it's half a million huh. normally every year, and now it's a million. And everyone's like, oh, god, the house price has gone through the roof. I think it, it, it could be very tempting to blame it on some sort of globalist conspiracy to kind of just, uh, just bleed out uh, <laughs> British uh, liberals. I, I don't. I don't think it's conspiracy. I think it's that our government are incompetent and afraid of the media, uh, because they know that if they turn around and do a Trump and say, "Well, we're just going to close the borders. We're just not going to have it," the media will freak out because the assumption that underlies it. Why does that, the media wag the dog? Oh, uh, because the conservatives are cowards, and yeah. they. The, the weird thing you about give the them a mile, they take an inch. It's worse than that, frankly. But the the problem with conservatives, they're very bad at formulating a moral argument in favor of what they want to do, which is weird because the things that they actually want to do are very popular with the public. Like very, you know, because they, 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 we're a very conservative country, and for some reason we're being the the, yeah, the dog is being wagged by a very left wing media, and the conservatives who, I mean, you 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 can't understand the scope of boris johnson's victory in 2019 if you're not in britain like he smashed the labor party he smashed them he got a phenomenal absolute majority in the parliament and the british parliament is totally sovereign there are no limits to what the british parliament can actually legislate uh th this was established in the uh, the civil war uh and so and so boris johnson could do anything he wanted he could just sit there like Tony Blair did when he got into power, just sat there legislating day after day. Just, no, we're doing this, we're doing this, because he, you know, having the majority of the the parliament meant he could rubber stamp anything, and yet he's done virtually nothing. You know, and so, this is this is why I gravitate more towards right thinking. The the Yarvin, the, the uh, yeah. Aaron McIntyre. It's just that the, there's this there's this organism that's actually controlling things. It's neoliberal. It it 
it, it's, it's globalist. It's yeah. ideological. It's it, it's it's using Marxism for its own ends. It just wants power. It's just creating mm -hmm. power, and it doesn't matter what kind of conservative or anti-establishment figures we throw up there. There's no way that a Trump's going to smash through that. There's no way that uh, maybe in the same thing with your country, they are all these politicians. It's window dressing for something that is inevitable. It's like this Thanos blind it, entity. It's so, it's so peculiar, isn't it? Like it, I just. I mean, they, the, 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 the power that the conservatives currently wield, and they can't even stop illegal immigrants crossing the channel in dinghies. And they, they go, oh, well, you know, we've got lefty human rights lawyers who are using the Human Rights Act of 1998 to, to hmm. stop our attempt to deport them. It's like, well, then repeal the Human Rights Act of 1998 and replace it with something that doesn't allow them to do it. I yeah. mean, it was in your manifesto in 2018 that they said, we're going to look at this and maybe change this. Okay, now you have unlimited power to do so why didn't you do that on day one you know what is wrong with you what's stopping you and i can only assume it's fear will. of fear of the media i think because the media will say oh you're racist and they should just be like donald trump be like i don't care what you think shut up communists you know i'm not going to have you you know we're going to make britain great again you know that should have been what boris was like and that's what they all were afraid he was going to be like and yeah. he wasn't anything like it so that's very disappointing <sighs> so weird we're at such a weird intersection of times and the victory lies there as well. Like the victory lies there. People want that. And I think the polls, it like is, it's not like there's not polling that shows that the public want less immigration, want the illegal immigrants sorted. They don't want like all of these problems that we're having that are caused by all of these sort of um, innovations that were brought in by the last Labour government. They don't actually want these things. Like the Labour government brought in devolved parliaments. And okay, What's that, that sounds... Sorry? Devolve, 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 parlamenta. That's exactly it. Uh, it's a very French idea, exactly. Um, but the, but this is the point. Like, oh, well, we'll give the Welsh the assembly. We'll give the Scots a, a, a national parliament. It's like, well, what do you think is going to happen in them? Oh, okay. oh, they turned into hotbeds of secession. What yeah. a shock! And so in 2014, the Scots yeah. were like, right, we're going. We finally got the votes. We're going to we're going to have a, a, a Scottish referendum on whether we leave the UK, and the votes stay in. <laughs> so it's just like okay well now what and so the scott the, the scotch national party are continuing on well we're gonna have another referendum to what end what's the point boris abolish them they don't need them you know they're just yeah. secessionist you know movements that form in these parliaments if you're the government the, the one nation conservatives you get rid of the devolved parliaments because they're not in any way conducive mm. to the health of the country you are currently yeah. in command of yeah. but they do nothing they do nothing and it's so bizarre he could do it tomorrow the supreme court right britain historically has never had a supreme court has high courts the high okay. courts are the, they the, they arbitrate the law then they interpret the law they do arbitrate the law in, in the name of the king or the queen in that case at the moment uh and so we, this this is all we've ever had uh, but the Americans, you guys, decided, well, you can have a Supreme Court, which is fine, but that's a political organ. It's a political entity. And you know that. You know, that's fine. And that's that's taking Well, I mean, account. I don't want them shot or assassinated as political authorities. Well, I mean, <laughs> Kavanaugh nearly got it, didn't he? Uh, but the point is, it's expressly a political entity. It's a check and balance in your government, right? Yeah. Because you have a separation of powers. But we don't have that. We're a constitutional monarchy where the, the head of state is also the head of the church uh, yeah. and head of the courts. Uh, we are oh. an evolved country. Elizabeth can just say, I don't like the way that this law was interpreted. We're going to switch around well, this word here. The law flows from the king. 
okay. that's the thing the the authority of the common law flows from the king and the point of the common law was that it put the king on the side of the common man against the institutions that was the point of it uh and so we're not the same as america and so when tony blair again the labor government were like oh we're gonna we're gonna give us a supreme court why we've never needed one before why would we need one now and so in 2009 we got a Supreme Court. I mean, I've got T-shirts that are older than our Supreme Court. Like this came about in 2009. And so ever, obviously. But was it tacked on or given a bunch of authority? On. It was given a bunch of, well, that was, that, that, was, that, that was the question. So we're going to have a Supreme Court. It's like, okay, but we've never needed one. Where does it fit in? Well, assume it's above the high courts. It's like, okay, maybe. Why do we need that? And it didn't really do that much until the Brexit referendum. And then the Supreme Court tried to intervene to overturn the brexit yeah, yeah, referendum yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. and it's like oh well that that went down really well didn't it boris the get brexit done guy get rid of it just get rid of it it's a politicized entity that we okay. never needed in advance and has been in literally a foreign sort of frankenstein's monster stitched on to our ancient well, system it, because it's expedient for certain political well wills to exactly and as a conservative you would think well it would be expedient for our conservative will to get rid yeah. of this and yeah. yet they they do nothing and so it's just it's unbelievably frustrating to be living at this moment in britain where you know the conservatives can do everything and you know that if you were sat in a bar talking to them they would say oh yeah we should probably do that and yet they do nothing it's is it just because of weakness you say incompetence but that can only cover so much I, I think it it's it's weakness and incompetence boris is definitely incompetent and he is definitely weak uh, and the, the entire party seems riddled with it. The problem with the Conservative Party is it's like 180 years old. So it's older than a lot of countries. Uh, and so it's a very venerable institution in and of itself. Yeah. And so the party itself has like an internal structure uh, that means that there are avenues of resistance to any kind of change, even if the course we're on at the moment is totally detrimental to conservative interests so it's it's very complicated and I'm, I'm not going to say i pretend to know how it works internally either because i'm not a member of the conservative party um so i, I i'm not going to say i know how it works but you can see this from the outside and it's just really inf infuriating and mm. there appears to be very little we can do the conservatives are basically left wing in this country yeah. Uh, and they really are it's the old the old joke of um well they're just progressive driving driving the speed limit very yeah. much, very much. Yeah. And so you're tempted to go reactionary or not. You're, you're constantly, I don't want to be, a cons don't make me a conservative. Don't make me right wing. I don't want to do it. But if I look really closely at where I am and where we're headed, we need some sort of opposition. Even if you yeah. don't want to Im Im embody that, you still want to bring it at least to the liberals' attention that this is some no, classical liberals this is some very deep flaws and we're going to either secede to marxism or just be overrun by incompetence unless we get some sort of values no oh, you you steal ourselves nail on the head it, it's one of those things where we we've come to the fork in the road where little other choice is available to us and it's not that i want to be a reactionary if i did i'd just say you know i, I you know, I've I've met many of these near reactionary types, and they're they're nice. They're, they're often very philosophical and very thoughtful. Um, it's it's not that I think there's anything bad about it. Um, it's that I I don't think that 
we can turn back the clock. So what I think needs to happen is mm. a, a synthesis between these conservative values and liberalism as an ideology. And this is why I'm attacking the false assumptions in liberalism, yeah. because look, we have to replace these with something that doesn't enable communists to subvert our civilizations. You know, and I think that you're onto something intuitively about studying aesthetics and being aware that aesthetic is going to be a bridge that will yeah. tie um, the stories together, tie these values yeah. together. And, and I think framing it in terms of story, the, the critical race theorists are very cognizant of this, that, that mm. values are transmitted through stories. They're very, very aware of this. And this is why you in see testimonials. Uh, yeah. It, it, lived experience. It, they're a form of story. You know, any, yeah. I mean, one, one of the, um, I can't remember which essay it is now, but in the, uh, in the big Bible of critical race theory that Kimberly Crenshaw put together, uh, one of them is explicit about like, look, we're going to flood the airwaves with our stories because this is what persuades people. And this is mm -hmm. what helps them understand our perspective on the world. It's like, okay, well, there we go. So I, I, I really think the aesthetic question is one that we need to answer. And this ties with conservatism because it's okay what do we want to see around us that will make us feel a certain way right and what you want is to have people you know people you love you know a countryside that you like you know you don't want to wake up in a giant brutalist hellscape nightmare where it's just you know tenements as far as the eye can see, filled with people gibbering all kinds of different languages, like the Tower of Babel, that mm -hmm. you can't recognize, you can't understand, you can't have any human sentiment for. You know, they're just strangers who arrived yesterday and might be gone tomorrow. You know, you don't want that. What you want is a place where you can have lasting connections with neighbors you like, and you you can, you know, say good morning to, you know, where you wake up with your kids and your, your wife, and you go to your job, and things are comforting. You know, they make you feel in a certain way. This is the aesthetic of the world that the conservatives really need to start talking about. And you can see a lot of the younger guys uh, online posting memes about, you know, the, the little frog who's just like, men only want think one thing, and it's a, a wife and kids, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and you can see, and that's, that's the thing that we need to be able to, uh, hmm. to, to really hit on and, and argue for in a way that, steps outside of the framework of the left because as any as any military historian will tell you uh, battles are won when you choose the field uh, if you you fight in the enemy's field you're going to lose because they chose it for a reason because they had all the advantages there so you need to go outside of the experience of the enemy and fight them on ground they're not familiar with and thankfully the good aesthetics life. the good life yeah the aesthetics is actually something they're not good at in fact, I mean, look at, look at, like, it's, again, it's another meme where it's like the, the beautiful young girl goes to university and cuts her hair, pierces her face, gets a bunch of tattoos, dies. It looks disgusting. You know, it's like, you know, there's something wrong with that. No, right? they're anti-aesthetic. The postmodern aesthetic is anti-aesthetic. Exactly. And so the, the, the right wing, the conservatives need to take what is good from liberalism and synthesize it through the form of the aesthetic that they are trying to project as a story, what an aspirational story to yeah. young people. And it has to appeal to both men and women. You know, it has to be together. You can have something beautiful. Yeah. There's I, one more question mm -hmm. at the end of your conversation with Aaron um, McIntyre, you, 
you complimented him and the other uh, neo-reactionary or NRX people for not using a categorical language of the left, mm. and I didn't quite understand what you meant. You said that they were describing or arguing in a way that was avoiding a pitfall. And was that categorical language, was that about relying on identity categories? Is that what you meant by Yeah. That? So the categorical language is things like, you know, white, black, male, female. Uh, they, they, they are speaking in the thick concepts. So they speak of men and women, right? They speak of uh, you know, Americans or Englishmen or Frenchmen or, you know, Senegalese okay. or whatever. With, with, with polyvalence or things that have yeah. different... Yeah, yeah. the, the, thick, the thick concepts of these okay. things, right? It's got a descriptive, prescriptive and sort of uh, aesthetic quality to it. Yeah. And so they're, they're very clever to speak outside of the language of the left. Um, and, the, and it's very human. It's very human language and it touches the kind of like lizard sentiment in the back of the skull, you know, where they can speak of moral concepts as they're describing a thing and say, well, look, this is a great betrayal or deceit that's being foisted upon us by the ruling class. And you'd only do that if you hated the people you were dealing with. And then when you look at the Democrats, well, they look like a bunch of people who really hate the average person, you know, but you look at Trump and Trump had a great way of tapping into this kind of champion of the people vibe because he was an american first and foremost trump is if nothing else he's a goddamn american and that's a particular thing in a particular time in a particular place and it looks a particular way yeah. it's not just an abstract categorical you know not everyone is american it's a very exclusive thing you know but anyone with white skin is white you know so it's it's then yeah, the, okay. the the nrx are, are very good at speaking in this very human language and they should you know, we and conservatives should learn from that. That's definitely something they should do. So, do you have anything to plug? Are you guys doing a Lotus Eaters tour? Um, you guys got like a light show, like a Pink Floyd style uh, light show, blazers no. and mushrooms and a little no. rave happening? Not, not yet. We we yeah. should do something like that. I think. Um, like a but banquet, we maybe we aren't at the stage where we want to yet. I think uh, we're still building the foundation, still building the, the house. Um, but it's, it, I think it's going very well. We're actually looking to upgrade the studio, uh, in the next few months. Oh, but, okay. Uh, yeah. So we will have two studios hopefully. And, uh, for recording be, or broadcast. For, yeah, yeah. For That's broadcasting. Yeah. And it'll be bigger. So we'll have more people on camera at once. That'll be very exciting. Uh, but this is a few months off yet, but, um, and is yeah, it all so, online? Are you guys publishing books, uh, doing like films or something like that? A little bit more concentrated well, media content. It depends on whether we can expand. So um, okay. we don't do any advertising. So that obviously does, uh, like we don't do adverts on the podcast. So it's, the Daily Wire will be like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And now a word from our sponsors. We don't have sponsors. And I don't yeah. want sponsors either. So that does limit our growth potential, unfortunately. Because obviously we could make you know three times the money if we did do that. But I, I've never done adverts. And I think it would be vaguely wrong in some way to do adverts. Um I, I really like the fact that we're totally independent. Again, like no one has these yeah. strings on us. Uh, and so we, people, you know, for five pounds a month, subscribe to the website, get access to all of the content that we put up there. And that's how everything is paid for, basically. Uh, and so it's a slower process, but yeah. it seems to have deeper roots and it's more reliable, frankly. It keeps us focused on the mission and we don't, you know, we don't have to have you know it's a bit sordid 
doing adverts when we're trying to do what we're doing. Yeah. And so thankfully we don't have to do that. So you, you guys don't have a, what is a woman or a Gina Carano movie coming down the pipe? So not yet. The, the daily wire have had a few years, uh, advance on us but i do expect us to start doing things like we're, we're currently hiring at the moment actually uh so if anyone's interested go to lowseas.com forward slash careers uh to see what we've got available um so we are we are currently hiring um but it would be it'll be in a few years time when we've got you know a really solid foundation that we'll be able to do that yeah, but yeah. Uh, but we're doing i think pretty well uh, at the moment and i'm very happy with the content we're producing i'm very happy with the team itself and yeah, it seems to be all going fairly well, dare I say it, you know. Well, yeah, at, at the risk of uh, being perceived of blowing smoke in your direction, there was this uh, interesting, uh, I think it was from the right wing, right wing Twitter erupted in praise <laughs> about you. So they said, uh, Sargon's <laughs> the one guy that made it out of yeah. Gamer Days. The one guy who survived Gamergate and actually built something. Uh, so You know, I put it down to not being on the internet all the time. Uh, yeah. Believe it or not, I'm not actually very online because uh, obviously I've got a family and I've got business. You got sword so, fighting to do. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I've got real people to deal with. And it seems that a lot of the people from GameGate who self-destructed have done so because they're just on the internet all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, honestly, it's, I, I feel sorry for quite a few of them now, actually, which is, you know, and I don't mean to be condescending. I'm, I'm just like, come on, you can do better, surely. Yeah. You know? Well, it's the internet. It's really easy to to buy into the icon that you that people yeah. are buying into. It's really yeah, easy it to is. do that. And it's it's good to escape that Anchor. as well. Yeah. Well, Carl, I'm going to end the recording. Thank you so much for your time. Great to catch up with you. Our third time. Oh, I had a wonderful time. I, I always enjoyed these conversations because uh, you... you you have a way of drawing out uh, the best in people I've noticed in your <laughs> conversations. You've got a very understated interview style that I think is uh, not as widely recognized as it should be. Well, uh, all in good time. All in good time.